Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on February 16th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, so you can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is, can democracy survive the internet? We'll talk about our information ecosystem and how it's contributed to this very divisive moment in American politics. How did it go so wrong? Can we fix it? What role do myths and disinformation, social media, media silos, and alternative realities play in fostering extremism? And how are these issues playing out right here in real world Maine? Real world Maine? What remedies are suggested by the research? Uh, we'll cover all these topics and more. So this is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Ronald Debert is a professor, professor of political science at the University of Toronto, the director of the Citizen Lab Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and author of the important new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Um, we're so pleased to have you with us today, Ron. Thanks for coming on. Thank, thank you for having me. And Andy O'Brien is right here with us from Maine. He's a freelance journalist for the magazine Mainer, where he has been reporting on far-right groups in Maine. His writings have been published in Downey's Magazine, the Huffington Post, and Labor Notes. He's also a former Maine state legislator, a former managing editor of the Free Press in Rockland, and currently communications director for the Maine AFL-CIO. So pleased to have you with us today, Andy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So this is the second in what we hope will be a four-part series on the breakdown in civility and fact-based deliberation that has shaken our faith in democracy over the last several years, in particular the last few weeks. The rule of law, our fellow citizens, we, we don't believe as much anymore as we did even just a few weeks ago. On our January show, which you can hear from the archive at weru.org, we talked with experts about deliberative democracy, engaging with each other, exchanging viewpoints and experiences that help build a shared understanding, even if differences persist. Today, we want to explore how the internet is shaping our politics and civic life and maybe eroding opportunities for sincere deliberation, why this might be a problem for the future of our Western-style constitutional democracies. So, I, Ron, I want to let the important work that you've done in your book sort of set the stage for our conversation. I'm just going to ask you to summarize from your book the major ways that you see the Internet as playing a problematic role in civil society. Sure. Thank you, Anne. And, uh, you know, it's really appropriate to be discussing this topic, not just because of the events of January 6th, but Also, it happens to be the 10-year anniversary of the Arab Spring. And if you recall um, those events, at that time, there was a great deal of enthusiasm around the internet and social media, a lot of uh, great expectations. Um, People call it a a Twitter revolution or Facebook revolution. Um, But over the last decade, we've seen, in fact, um, some contrary tendencies. In my book, 
I, I lay out what I consider to be the pathologies of social media. And when it comes to the particular issues around misinformation, disinformation, and the, the kind of toxic nature of the public sphere that we all experience, I think there are really sort of two related um, factors that contributed to it. But, but first of all, let me say that I think it would be a mistake to say social media and the internet is entirely to blame for all of this. Um, the way I think about it is it's kind of like an environment. Um, and when an environment changes, certain species flourish and thrive, others are constrained. That's a kind of nice way to think about the causal relationship here. So, you know, we've had disinformation, misinformation, propaganda going back centuries, time immemorial. Um, but with social media, what you have here is, is a kind of manipulation machine by design uh, that really uh, revolves back to the underlying business model, uh, which Shoshana Zuboff, the business management professor, I think really nicely captured in this phrase, surveillance capitalism. So the idea here is this, this uh, regardless of how social media describe themselves, they're ultimately about one thing, and that is to um, capture and retain users in order to gather as much data as they can from those users and monetize it in some way. Um, and in order to do that, um, their uh, algorithms uh, prioritize and propel forward content that attracts us. And that, uh, all things being equal, tends to be sensational, extreme, emotional type of content, content that makes us indignant and angry. So um, it's really not as if there's there's some kind of uh, conspiracy underlying all this. What, what you're seeing is the output of the machine just working as it's designed. You know, this is the type of content that people are attracted to. Let's push more content in that direction. Um, so you get this kind of really toxic mess. And um, what that does is actually create the perfect ecosystem for those who are malicious. Um, whether they are foreign actors, they get a lot of attention in your country, Russian disinformation, so on. Russia is not alone. Governments around the world are seeing social media as this giant disinformation laboratory. And so <clears throat> they're very quickly putting a lot of effort into um, sowing confusion, undermining trust in public institutions, not to further any particular ideology per se, but instead just to bring about a kind of fatigue and a, and a policy paralysis. So you have the machinery of social media working as intended. Then you have outsiders with bad intentions, autocrats, dictators, you name it, enabled by dark PR firms and data analytic companies, uh, muddying the waters further. And of course, the sheer volume of information alone, even notwithstanding those two other features, makes it dif very difficult to A, have a kind of rational conversation like we are now on social media platforms, um, but also to discern fact from fiction. Um, it's just like a constant tsunami of information. Of course, this is also not anything new to social media. People have been um, remarking about that type of condition of the information age for decades, but it's been certainly amplified by social media. So I'd say those are the general uh, main reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing right now. You talk a little bit in your book, too, about um, the way in which governments are using some of this information and access to like our personal data in ways that may not be so great either. Yeah, so the, <clears throat> the other feature 
an unintended consequence of social media is its inherent insecurity and the, and the fact that it's invasive by design. So those two together are real potent brew. Um, so what you have here are, because of the business model, sensors being pushed closer and closer to people um, on our devices, applications that monitor everything from our, our movements to our heartbeats and so forth, internet of things, embedded appliances, wearables, and so on. So the, the relentless logic of surveillance capitalism is to push this technology as close as possible, very intimate with its users. But security has largely been an afterthought. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg characterized Facebook's philosophy once as move fast and break things, which is a, a really good description of the overall uh, environment of software development right now. <clears throat> so the, the overarching imperative is to quickly push products out. And that's why we see uh, data breaches on, almost on a like daily basis. However, it also turns out that those two properties, invasive by design, highly insecure, turns out to be, uh, as I say in the book, a dictator's best friend. Um, so again, here, the contrast with the Arab Spring is, is noteworthy. Um, <clears throat> at that time, in the early days of, of social media, autocrats were kind of caught off guard, um, but very quickly they turned to the private sector, to this enormous and growing cybersecurity surveillance industry marketplace. And that the firms within that marketplace equip, equip them with tools to be able to hack into the devices of their adversaries. And so at, at Citizen Lab, we've been documenting really a plague of this type of targeted di digital espionage against journalists, human rights defenders, political opposition, and so on. You can trace that back to the opportunities for exploitation that have been created unintentionally uh, as part of our embrace of social media. I mean, we're seeing a little bit of that right now in Myanmar, and I've been listening to some of the reporting about how, you know, even under this um, military crackdown, people are still able to be finding each other somehow. And so that's sort of both sides of that playing out even right now. Yeah, you have you have a constant struggle going on. Um, the problem is there's a huge asymmetry of power on on just about every sector that you think about. So yeah, citizens, mobilized citizens can use all sorts of ingenious means to connect to the outside. Even in, in a situation like Myanmar where the internet is cut off, there's still ways to to you know, move information out. And, <clears throat> but at the same time, I think, generally speaking, the world has been sliding into authoritarianism, unfortunately. There are shrinking spaces for civil society. Uh, governments, uh, because of the, the characteristics that I've just described, governments around the world are moving quickly to embrace uh, a kind of offensive doctrine in cyberspace, as they call it. So finding ways to engage in, in hacking and mass surveillance combined. Um, and, and, and this is uh, really, uh, in, in my view, I think, um, you know, undermining some of the early expectations a lot of people had about the internet and liberalization and democratization just hasn't panned out that way. And I think in hindsight now we can say with confidence, well, this is why. This is, this is a, a byproduct of of some of the things we've kind of slut walked into, if you if you will, and here we are. 
Andy, I know that that your reporting has been focusing on Maine and a little bit about how extremists find each other in Maine and are able to form communities in cyberspace that they would have had a lot more difficulty forming in real life. Just give us a couple of examples of what you're finding. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been following the white supremacist movement for many, many years for the past couple decades. One of my uh, classmates growing up formed a white supremacist group that had a rally in Lewiston back in 2002. And I remember him walking around the streets of Rockland with with pamphlets, handing them out. Um, And, you know, white supremacists have always been kind of savvy on the Internet, though. I mean, back in the 80s, they were some of the early adopters of of the Internet um, to get their message out. Um, But. With social media, uh, it, it really it, it just spreads so much quicker, and it's and people are much easier. It's much easier to connect with people and to radicalize other people who might be in sort of the mainstream conservative movement. So, <clears throat> one of the one of the guys that I was tracking with was involved in this group called Iron March. Uh, he was a University of Maine student, and um, he got he he was a sort of a Christian conservative who started a, uh, reading on the internet uh, sort of anti-Semitic conspiracies. And then he basically uh, tried to join um, a neo-Nazi terrorist group uh, that's been branded as domestic terrorists. Um, you know, it, but it's also, it's not just sort of like these overt sort of white supremacist Nazi groups. Um, when Facebook started these Facebook groups, uh, a few years ago, uh, we started to see these groups that became real echo chambers for far right beliefs and recruiting grounds for right supremacists. So, for example, there was uh, a group down in Lewiston that was uh, kind of a community forum for like people to talk about issues in Lewiston and stuff. But it was it was really dominated by uh, anti-Muslim uh, extremists. And you'd see people who are sort of militia members joining this group and trying to recruit people. Um, and they started targeting um, a city councilor who was a Somali American Muslim who um, was running for city council. And she eventually became the first uh, Somali American elected city council in Maine. Uh, but this group really fueled this really violent uh, uh, rage against her. And you know, she was getting death threats. She was getting um, just horrible things. Violent fantasies were spread in this group. And then you started seeing like real sort of established white supremacists going into the group and recruiting people. Yeah. Um, and so what was interesting in that story is that, like we broke this story and it went viral because at the time um, Mark Zuckerberg was before Congress for, for whatever reason they wanted to talk about regulating Facebook. And it, my story, went, our story went viral. And then all of a sudden I get a tweet from Facebook's chief technology officer um, saying like, oh, this is this is I'm glad you're doing this. We're going to rein this all in, blah, blah, blah. And then like he didn't even take down the group. He took down the admin. I'm like, well, she's got two accounts. So then they took down the other account and then she just started another account. And it's still going. Um you know, and, and so you, it's funny, you all you always see this with Facebook is as soon as something horrible happens, like uh, a mass shooting or um, like the January 6th uh, Capitol insurrection, a lot of these groups in Maine all of a sudden got wiped out. They all got taken down. And now gradually you see them popping up again. Right, right, right. Uh, and and 
I think one of the scariest examples um, that I saw of how social media radicalizes people is when COVID-19 hit in last March. And a lot of people were isolated. They were frightened. They were looking for answers. Um, and they started um, gravitating to these sort of anti-lockdown groups. And then um, those anti-lockdown groups started um, became a breeding ground for QAnon conspiracies. And so people were just openly talking about QAnon, which is, you know, an anti-Semitic conspiracy. Um, you know, I think we all know what that's about. Right. We've probably heard a lot about it in the news. Um, and then the group became an anti-BLM group uh, when, when the movement for Black Lives started having rallies all over the country and the state. Um, and so you see how they just become this real, and they kick out any critics, right? right so. Right. Anybody who questions their beliefs gets immediately booted. So essentially, they're forming like a headquarters within Facebook for this stuff. You're tuned to the Demo Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is, can democracy survive the internet? internet? Our guests are Ron Diebert, professor of political science at the University of Toronto and director of the Citizen Lab Monk School of Global P Affairs and Public Policy and author of the new, new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Also with us is Andy O'Brien, freelance journalist from Maine, where he's been reporting on far-right groups for the magazine Mainer. He's also a former Maine state legislator, former managing editor of the Free Press Online. Um, we were talking about how the internet has allowed people to find each other and sort of amplified some of these extremist views. What does your research tell us about this phenomenon, Ron? Well, I, I think uh, Andy nicely describes one important feature of all, of all of this, which is that, you know, you have a, at the bottom of it, generally speaking, a good thing, at least as it's marketed that, you know, look at what we're doing right now, for example, we can use these technologies to mount our own conversation broadcasted over the internet and so forth. <clears throat> but there's a downside to that, obviously, you give everyone a bullhorn, and the ability to reach a lot of people, um, some nasty stuff is going to percolate up to the surface. Um, the platforms amplify this in a couple of ways. One is through their recommendation engine. So, you know, they're looking to find stuff, as I said, that grabs you, that retains you. And that, that tends to be, you know, content that is generally of a certain flavor. Um, and, and that means that um, this type of extreme content, whether it's hate speech or racist speech or conspiracy theory, is likely going to percolate to the surface. Um, but then also the, the recommendation uh, algorithms of the platforms are gonna point people to uh, other types of content that they think they'll find attractive. And this is why you have a kind of spillover from like say alt-right content or you know lockdown um, content, anti-vax content into QAnon land. Um, the other thing I, I will say is that the, the platforms uh, although they're under enormous pressure right now, more than ever, I would say, especially in the United States, um, under scrutiny, there's antitrust investigations going on and so forth. They really haven't uh, figured out how to properly manage um, this type of thing on their platforms. Uh, for every example of them, you know, uh, uh, deplatforming certain groups or removing certain types of content, 
it props up elsewhere. So there's a, a kind of whack-a-mole game going on here, which makes perfect sense when you think about the underlying engine of it all, right? Like in, until they get at the underlying core business model, this problem is not, is not going to uh, be solved. And, and it also reflects a, a lack of kind of standardization. So a lot of their responses tend to be uh, up until now ad hoc, fragmented, kind of reacting to, so, you know, something gets published, it goes viral, uh-oh, we better do something about it. Um, instead of uh, forward thinking, you know, how can we manage our platforms in a way that anticipate these problems, identify things before they become an issue, create some really transparent rules. Um, they, they really haven't done that. At best, they've done it in in bits and pieces. So. Right now, Facebook has this uh, oversight board that they've created. Um, they call it, they called it the Supreme Court of Facebook. Um, <clears throat> the idea here is they have a group of people who are go going to review content that's taken down on Facebook, and their uh, decisions will be binding. Uh, right now, they're actually reviewing the decision to uh, ban Donald Trump from from Facebook. Um, so if the if the Facebook oversight board says, oh, you know, we got to put Trump back. That's what they'll do. Um, a lot of people have looked at this and said, well, you know, this is, you know, an interesting experiment in corporate self-governance. Um, but do we need something else? Uh, do we need some kind of principled democratic governance over this? These are not elected officials. They're they're running a, a, a essentially a public sphere, much like a private shopping mall, right? So there's a, a private company um, that can create its own rules and uh, yet a lot of people are using it as our town square. So there's a, almost like an inherent contradiction there. Um, I'm sure we'll get into some of the solutions later, but, but this is the underlying problem. You have this kind of ad hoc reactionary approach to, to uh, content and to organizations online um, that uh, you know, move in the direction of, of what many people find objectionable. And the platforms have just done it an inconsistent job in policing their own spaces. These are, these are publicly traded companies, are they not? And they're making money off this. So, I mean, you've alluded to one way that they make money was by collecting data on each of us and reselling it. Um, and then they must make money on advertising too, all of which probably has to do with more people, more eyeballs, more, 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 which must make it hard for them to curtail some of these activities. Sure, yeah, there, there's the inherent contradiction that I talked about, right? You have this business model that's about, okay, sensational content, but there's this sensational content that's causing us troubles. Let's remove it, but that's going to cost us. Obviously, just to take one example, Donald Trump made the platforms a lot of money because he draws a lot of or drew a lot of attention. Speaking of money, though, I think there's an underlying layer that's often overlooked by a lot of people, and that is the um, the revenue generating uh, potential of a lot of the groups themselves that are behind this. So um, there may be people who genuinely be believe these horrible things, but there are also a lot of uh, people involved in this that are basically grifters. You know, they're seeing this as a way to line their pockets, and so they create uh, quite extensive networks in some in some instances of Facebook groups, Twitter pages, other social media platforms that have content that cross links to each other. Um, maybe they combine that with uh, their own 
podcasts and Patreon subscriptions. You know, so it's it, blaming Facebook and Twitter and the revenue they derive kind of misses this this under underbelly um, that's a bit more insidious and yet um, is a very real component of, of all of that we see online. I see you nodding there, Andy. Did you uncover that kind of grifting in the work that you did? I mean, locally, we do have uh, some like really far right podcasters and things like that. Um, they don't make a, a lot of money, <laughs> um, but but they, you know, there is some of that. Uh, and certainly, you know, as as Ronald was saying, on the national level, that's a huge problem. Um, you know, I think that to be honest, I think Twitter does a better job of this than Facebook. Um, of, of curbing this kind of behavior. Um, a lot of these far-right personalities have been banned for Twitter, but they're still active on Facebook. Um, well, that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you both, Andy, and maybe you can take it first is, you know, in the money and politics world, we talk about the hydraulics of it. You know, you squeeze the money out over here and it pops up over there. And I, I wonder if it's the same here because there are so many different platforms and um you know i remember you know trump was banned over here and all his people went over there i mean is what did you see that in some of the reporting that you did yeah yeah i mean we had a a former state representative uh candidate for state legislature who was down at the insurrection and i and she got banned from Facebook for a while. Then she went over to Parler, mm-hmm. and then some other sort of like far right social media thing. I mean, I don't. That's the thing. I mean, they haven't been as successful as the mainstream. I mean, I think eighty-five percent of social media users use Facebook at this point. I think um, you know it's by far the most popular one. And and I watch a lot of people float over to Gab, um, but Gab's pretty awful (laughs) i've seen a lot of people leave that i mean it's just really overtly nazi stuff there and it's just not as user-friendly it's just not a good platform um but you know it's not to stop somebody from starting a you know a much more powerful one and certainly a lot of these groups have also gone over to chatting programs like telegram and MeWe and stuff like that um and so they're still able to organize just not in the same way so, I mean, getting Facebook to voluntarily change its algorithm is not going to fix this problem, is it, Ron? No, and it it, it points to a, a more fundamental issue, and that is the question of the business model and the algorithms of these companies, which have effectively become our public sphere or public spheres, let's say, components of our public sphere. Um, and yet um, their algorithms, which... Uh, shape and constrain what can be communicated, what type of information we seek and receive are proprietary. Um, So, you know, you can easily identify some features of those algorithms from the outside. And and as researchers, we do uh, a a kind of adversarial research. So we will do experiments, not with the tech platforms in the West so much. We've done a lot of it with respect to to China-based social media applications, which are you know, heavily embedded with censorship and surveillance. So for us as researchers, it's an interesting case. We can probe from the outside and kind of figure out, okay, here are the keywords that are used to trigger censorship on WeChat or whatever. Um, Sometimes we can reverse engineer the applications. But the bottom line is, you know, you have this curious situation where um, the company's uh, secret sauce, the, the inner workings 
are proprietary and thus not transparent and subject to outside scrutiny. The way I think about this, uh, I use a metaphor to, to d describe the business model of social media in relation to us, the users. We're in essence, the livestock for their farms. And to extend that analogy here, imagine if there were food production facilities or meat packing plants where inspectors were not allowed to go in, in the public interest and make sure that whatever was going on inside them uh, was safe. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, I don't like taking this analogy too far, but you get where I'm going here. Um, it's the same with the platforms. You know, we we need to have, we desperately need some kind of outside independent accountability mechanism uh, to certify that, you know, here's what they're doing, here's, I think that would be one way uh, to bring uh, greater transparency and accountability in the public interest and perhaps ameliorate some of the excesses uh, that we see, because right now it's a big black box. And that that's a bad situation, I think, to have, generally speaking. If you're thinking about, you know, the architecture of our society, that's not a good thing. Um, and then, you know, we have to factor in that I'm a Canadian. I'm talking to you two in, in the United States. Most of these companies are U.S. companies. Um, you know, it's not so bad here in Canada because we have kind of like-minded uh uh, cousins, if you will. Um, but for people around the world who, for whom Facebook is their primary platform, these regulations and all of the debates that are having seem very distant, far removed from them, and yet have huge repercussions on uh, local politics in places like, you know, India, Southeast Asia, and so on, for both good and bad reasons, uh, and very arbitrary. Um, so this also speaks to the need for some sort of global mechanism, uh, at least some kind of standardization around how these platforms operate, rules they follow, and so on. Um, before things get better, that's that's what we need. And and I think, uh, you know, sadly, we're a long way from that right now. There's a, a big uphill journey that we'd have to take to get there. And I, I, I'm, In your book, you talked a little bit about um you know, U.S. surveillance and some of the revelations that came from the Snowden data dump. And I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about that after the break, but let me just do a quick station break and then we'll come back on that. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ron Diebert, Professor of Pro Political Science at the University of Toronto and Director of the Citizen Lab Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He's the author of the new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Also with us is Andy O'Brien. He's a freelance journalist from Maine, where he's been reporting on far-right groups for the magazine Mainer. Fascinating reading. He's also a former Maine state senator, former managing editor of the Free Press in Rockland. Very happy to have um, Andy with us today, too. Our topic is, Can Democracy Survive the Internet? This show was pre-recorded on February 16th, so we're not taking listener calls at this time, but we are interested in your comments. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. So to that question, um, are we being surveilled, like, <laughs> by our government? You know, they know every everything we do, where we go, any given moment in time, who we see. Well, uh, I guess the short answer would be yes. Um, okay, great. But there's a, there's an old adage: uh, the bank knows more about you than any government ever will, um, which I think may apply. 
Um, look, I, I, I actually, I got into this um, profession that I'm in uh, by way of background studying information technology and international security and in intelligence practices. And so I uh, was one of the a few people in Canada anyway, um, that was, um, had, had some knowledge of, of the type of content and the materials that Edward Snowden released. And actually I was um, one of the people who assisted in, uh, assisted the journalists here in Canada in interpreting uh, some of that material. And, and yeah, it was, you know, pretty profound to see the curtain pulled back on these operations revealed to the extent that he did. And, and what was exposed there was that yes, governments have for uh, many decades devoted uh, extraordinary capabilities and resources to gathering information from the data ecosystem that we live in, drawing from the data exhaust that all of us admit. Um, but as I point out in the book, the, the thing that really struck me at the time, this is 2013, I would say it's even more so now, is that um, even a, an agency as well endowed as the National Security Agency in the United States was um, for the most part piggybacking off of uh, the data vacuum cleaning operation that the large tech platforms had undertaken over that period of time. Um, and, and you can see this in all of the, the major programs, including like, for example, PRISM and other ones like that. Um, it's not so much that they were, you know, hacking into anything directly, although they do that as well, frankly, um, as, as much as, you know, reaping the harvest uh, secondhand from what the tech platforms are doing. So this is, this is actually um, a very serious matter for citizens um, because you have this, this uh, double concern. So on the one hand, you have all of this information gathering for, you know, economic reasons and, and as a matter now of, of how we simply uh, function in society with, with uh, embedded technology and wearables and even more so with the pandemic, um, and, and a lot of it in that uh, bucket is organized for, um, you know, around the personal data surveillance economy. But then you have the prospect of governments getting a hold of that data as well. And uh, there is a categorical difference between the two. So as much as, you know, Facebook can push content at us and amplify all sorts of nasty things and maybe even nudge us to buy, you know, this package of cereal instead of that, only a state can take away your liberties and and uh, in some jurisdictions actually end your life. And so it's a, it's a categorically different thing when the government has access to that data. And I, I think what we're seeing now is a kind of um, a, a gray area. Um, so there is a lot of information that's being collected that's floating around in the ether that um, in normal circumstances, or if you look at it abstractly, you think, you know, this is the type of thing that really should require a warrant. Um, but because it's just circulating out there, um, the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies can say, well, this is all in the public domain. This is the type of stuff that you, you know, you wittingly and, and willingly give over to the Googles and Facebooks of the world. Why can't we get access to it? Um, on top of it, you have uh, one of the, the worst cesspools of uh, the, the entire area that we're talking about is, is the, um, the large number of uh, data analytics, location tracking, and advertising companies that orbit around the big platforms uh, that basically act as parasitic firms 
you know, taking the data from Facebook, taking the data from Google, monetizing it and selling it to third parties. In the early days, that was mostly for advertising purposes. Now we're seeing it bleeding over into law enforcement, state security. Um, for example, uh, location tracking um, data uh, can be derived from numerous applications on our devices that are you know, giving themselves permission to follow us wherever we go. That ends up in the hands of firms that trade it with other firms who then trade it to, for example, uh, ICE or DHS or whatever. Um, th this uh, presents an enormous prospect for the abuse of state power. And if you think that's going on in the United States, you can imagine what's happening in places like China and other countries around the world. So we've got a very big problem when it comes to the protection of civil liberties as we move into this uh, space that we're in right now. It is something, go ahead, Andy, I see. Well, I was just gonna say, I mean, I there's uh, we have a lot of concerns about how this technology will be used by governments, not only, against uh, progressive movements as well. Um, and, and, you know, maybe we'll get to this in a moment about, you know, how do we monitor speech online that, that may come from um, a progressive point as opposed to a, a you know, a, a more right-wing point of view. Uh, but here in Maine, we have this uh, information and analysis center, which is uh, run by up in Augusta. It's an intelligence gathering service. And, and they do this thing called uh, open source intelligence, where they will just go through social media and collect all this information and share it amongst all these different departments all over the country. And what we saw last year uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement is they were um, collecting um, a lot of really um, inflammatory right-wing conspiracies about BLM. And uh, at one point there was rumors of like, you know, Antifa was going to descend on the city of Sanford uh, and, and destroy the city and all this stuff. And this was, these were conspiracies that were going back and forth among our law enforcement communities. You mean they were believing this? Yeah, they were sharing it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, th there's a lot of controversy about how much they believe that they were like, oh, we're just, we saw this, so we're sharing it or whatever. Uh, but it's a huge concern um, that that I think sort of overlaps with some of the stuff you're saying. But well, and I I don't want to uh, let this conversation go dark all the way across the finish line. So I want to give us a moment to think about you know what positive vision could we come up with? That what countries are are any countries doing this better? Can it be done country by country? Does it require a global solution? And um, you know how could we paint a picture of something that would actually work for us. Um, so I'll start with you, Ron. I mean, are there any countries doing it better than the U.S.? It seems pretty grim over here. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of places where it's much, much worse, but. Yeah, I, I, I think that it, it's a good question to ask. It depends on what you mean by it. If we're talking <laughs> about, uh, you know, regulating social media, the, the public being aware of these problems, I, th I think it's generally fair to say that Europe is a bit farther ahead than, than most other regions, uh, especially the, the Nordic countries are think have thought about, especially the disinformation part of it for a long time because they've been positioned geographically right next to Russia and have experienced, you know, the Baltic countries especially. Um, 
but also Norway, Sweden, and so on. You know, they've they've lived within the specter of Russian disinformation campaigns and influence operations. So they've kind of thought about the, you know, what does it take to create a healthy uh, civic uh, attitude in response to this, a resilience coming from below, and certainly governing social media has entered into that. So that you know, in Europe, you see, um, first of all, you know, stronger privacy regulations, uh, much more. Uh, detailed discussion of holding the surveillance industry that we talked a bit about, accountable, stronger export control laws, and so on. So I, I think they're moving uh, ahead of the game. The, the real what are they doing here, about disinformation? Well, you know, the, it, it's tough because um, when it comes to regulating the companies to really do it properly, you'd have to get right down into the manipulation engine at the heart of it. And I don't see a lot of that going on. What they are doing, A, is you, you see a lot of studies over there. So there are a lot of think tanks and research groups pushing out these studies about disinformation. That's important. It's obviously not a solution in and of itself, but you need that as a first step. Um, you're seeing a, um, extensive, uh, I would say, commitment, especially among those Northern European countries, into public education, right? Um, this is a, a, such an obvious solution to a lot of what we're speaking about here that again is often overlooked you know we used to uh, maybe i'm mythologizing a time that really never existed but um you know in ideal terms you'd want to have uh, a sense of like what it means to be a citizen and, and what it what civility uh means and where from where does that come and and how should it be part of our curriculum especially for young people I'm a professor at a university and I see that over the just the, the time of my career, um, the, the, the attention given to science, technology, engineering, mathematics, to the expense of the humanities, the arts, the social sciences, philosophy and so on, um, is, is, is really ruinous. And, and I think this is something that needs to be corrected. So the Europeans kind of, I think, have that part understood and, and they're taking measures. They always have to a large degree, certainly more than the United States. Um, but I think, you know, practically speaking, where to begin, uh, ultimately we do need to solve this problem. We're going to need a global solution, especially when you factor in China and the Chinese companies that I talk about. I mean, it's one thing for us to be having this conversation talking about, geez, what we can do about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and how they govern themselves really have no input into some of these large Chinese companies and and they're subject to a completely different rule set in China uh, that's that's pretty Orwellian frankly and yet that's the future so that's pretty daunting when you add that into the equation what are we going to do about them down the road um, so my view is that we need to start locally the best uh, the most traction can be had in my view at the municipal level um, so here in Toronto, we had Alphabet, the parent company of Google, propose a development project called Sidewalk Labs. It was going to be a Google-run smart city development in our waterfront. You know, lots of bells and whistles and, oh, my goodness, there'll be heated sidewalks and you won't have to look for a parking spot because your car will know where to go and all of this. But uh, the the um, civic-minded people of Toronto, you know, very active politically in this in this city, uh, really pressed both the city officials and 
Google for more transparency and accountability to the point where Alphabet just closed up shop and said, forget about it. We're not going to do this any longer. I think it's a good example of, of the type of accountability that can come locally. Uh, you know, you start with your local law enforcement. You start with your your local um you know, civic uh, officials and, and talk about how data is handled and, and right down to the level of your own device, start there. Like what, what device am I using? And, and, you know, what, what demands cause I, could I make as a user to the companies uh, to better protect my, my data? What are you seeing in that regard from the work you've done? And I mean, the stories that you've reported all have had a local context. Have you seen pushback from local communities against some of the incidents you've reported? I mean, there's there's not much uh, that they can do. I mean, right now we've got this situation where we have a bunch of anti-maskers kind of queuing on people, organizing online, showing up in Belfast and and t- harassing people for wearing masks. You know, they, they carry guns and they have mace and all this other stuff. And, you know, the city can't do much about their right to protest. And there's really not much, except maybe you can report some posts that will never get addressed. I mean, you mentioned at one point, um, I think in your email about employee pressure uh, being a leverage point. And I think that that's an interesting um, place to, uh, to look into because, you know, my day job, I work for the main AFL-CIO. You know, my life is unions and and looking at worker organizing. And, you know, most recently, uh, the Communications Workers of America, Local 1400, which represents a lot of communications workers in New England, um, uh, actually just uh, formed a union with Alphabet workers uh, with Google. And, you know, there's a lot of concern among tech workers about the direction of the company. And certainly... Last summer, we, we, there was a lot of quotes, anonymous mostly in, in the press, from Facebook employees who have quit because um, they felt that the company was hurting society, uh, that it was, you know, just uh, somebody said, I have blood on my hands now, I think, in the New Republic. And so, um, you know, tech organizing has been difficult because people make uh, good money often and they're... Um, you know, they just, they're more sort of libertarian minded. And I think a lot of them, um, but this is one area where I think a lot of them have grave concerns and, you know, by organizing and forming unions, they would have more of a say uh, in, in what the company does and, and what services they provide. So I think that that's one thing that we really should talk about more and look into. And we have seen Facebook and Google Bend a little bit to employee employee pressure, haven't haven't we, Ron? I mean, is that a, an avenue to pursue, or is it not got systemic enough implications to really make a difference? Well, I would say in the way to describe is not so much they they bended to to cater to these interests as much as the, as for years uh, they put a lot of resources into preventing it from happening. Um, Amazon is a good example. How um, to, as we speak, they are. Uh, allegedly uh, using a lot of their surveillance technology to monitor their own workers, both to ensure efficiency and all of that, but um, to also, uh, in many people's opinions, prevent unionization, to disrupt people from organizing, um, which is pretty, um, you know, haunting when you think about the power of a 
company like that being used in this manner. But again, that's, you know, the story of, of, of labor struggles is very much about, you know, the tough battles that people have had to go through um, in the face of, of corporate power. Um, this is a different type of corporate power that's being exercised. Maybe in the past, they send out the thugs with the baseball bats to break up organizing. Now they can, you know, have cameras in cars and, and microphones in, as, in assembly in manufacturing centers to listen in on people in the lunchrooms and hear what they're talking about. Um, uh, so yeah, th this is a big concern. I think organizing, um, labor organizing would be a, an essential step actually um, to, to bring some dignity to uh, a labor force, generally speaking, talking about the gig economy where people are treated, um, you know, most most of the Amazon drivers I see outside of my street right now, these are people in the front lines of the pandemic. Most of them, uh, you know, have, have no health benefits, um, are working around the clock to try to make money and, and largely are, are treated as a frivolous thing, um, something that ultimately maybe could be, um, you know, done away with, with artificial intelligence and driverless cars and so forth. Um, so yeah, definitely part of the solution set. I agree. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ron Diebert, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and Andy O'Brien, who's a Maine-based freelance journalist um, publishing right now in Maine Magazine about some of these topics. Um, He's also a former state legislator. I think I said senator before, but he's a former state legislator. And we're glad to have them both here. Um, this program was pre-recorded, so we're not taking listener calls today. Um, I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about whether treating some of these big companies as public utilities and or bringing antitrust um, litigation against them is a possible avenue. I mean, in your book, Ron, you talked about restraint and how government restraint as well as personal discipline and personal restraint were, you know, both part of the solution here. Is there a, a political so solution where citizens can demand of their government that they rein this kind of stuff in? How could that possibly work? Well, yeah, it's certainly on the table right now. There are discussions in, in your country. Um, a, a number of states have come together to file uh, antitrust lawsuits against uh, Facebook and I believe Google as well. And there are discussions that are really now very much in the air about Amazon as well, which I think is a, probably when it comes to predatory pricing and some of the other characteristics of what what is monopoly behavior, they, they basically fit the bill. Um, you, you mentioned also treating them as utilities. Generally speaking, you know, the, the solutions to monopolies have been either to make them utilities, public utilities, and give them preferential treatment and, and pricing and maybe even subsidies in exchange for them behaving in certain ways, usually in the public interest. The downside to that is then you have these, these big tech platforms as effectively part of our landscape. And, and maybe that won't, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, antitrust is different. It's about, you know, uh, breaking them up. Um, I, I think the the problem is that the antitrust conversation has uh, really narrowed its focus to a concern with economic competitiveness. Uh, in the early days of when, when um, 
that mechanism was used. If you look at, for example, Justice Louis Brandeis and some of the discussion around the big corporations of, of the early 20th century, it was as much a political tool as it was an economic one. The idea was big is bad. Concentration of power is bad. If you have companies that get to the size that they have this enormous uh, disparate wealth, they'll, they'll no doubt use it for political reasons. And so we need to use the tool of antitrust to break them up. Um, I, I, I think it, it's certainly worth exploring. One concern I have is, um, you know, when you open up a discussion like this uh, in the current climate, so politicized, and with the companies having such enormous lobbying power at their disposal, Lord knows what we will end up with at the end. Um, I think we need to um, holistically look at this and think about, you know, how do we as citizens recover some principled democratic governance over the tech platforms that control our communication sphere? Go ahead and answer that question. It's the one we all want to know the answer to. How do we do that? <laughs> well, I think it's not one solution. I, I think it's it's more about a, a spectrum of, of measures that we need to take. Um, so, for example, uh, what I described earlier about algorithmic accountability, having some kind of agency um, like a, an FDA uh, for the social media world that can expect the company's algorithms, bring some transparency and accountability uh, to this area is one solution. That doesn't have anything to do with antitrust or public utilities or anything like that. No reason why something like that couldn't happen through like, for example, a digital platform act. Um, there is also, you know, content moderation. Um, we don't want to get into the weeds with, uh, you know, communications regulation, but that you probably no doubt seen because, you know, Donald Trump tweeted about Section 230 yeah. of the Communications Decency Act, which, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we need to do away with. And um, a lot of people don't understand what that what that uh, specific rule is about. Um, in a nutshell, it provides the platforms with a certain degree of liability from certain types of legal risks. Um uh, immunity, I should say, from liability, from, from legal risk, while allowing them to come up with their own content moderation rules, right? Um, and I think that's generally speaking a good thing. It's why why we've seen not just the Facebooks in the world uh, of the world excel, it's why we see something like Wikipedia as well. If you didn't have Section 230, you wouldn't likely have something like Wikipedia. It would be um, drowned in frivolous lawsuits. So we need something like that, but maybe it could be modified in some way um, to increase the scope and the standardization around content moderation rules so the companies aren't acting reactively and in an ad hoc manner. And the starting point, as far as I'm concerned, are international human rights standards. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a good starting point for that discussion. But you know, those two that I just described are part of a, a to, tools in a toolkit instead of one solution, we need to think about multiple solutions. Yeah, we are kind of running out of time this afternoon. I want to give you each just a minute to make some parting parting thoughts on this topic. Andy, I'll let you go first. What do you think? If you want our listeners to take away a couple of thoughts, what would you have it be? I mean, these are really important discussions and I've learned a lot just from listening to Ron talk this hour um, about potential policies that we could get through. Um, 
But I also think we need to look at the immediate present as well, because as we know, with our government, it's incredibly difficult to get anything passed. Um, I think we really need to look into our communities and look at some of these people who are being radicalized and look at ways that we can build bridges and help to de-radicalize these people. Um, you know, we have a lot of really angry, um, isolated, atomized, and frankly, lonely uh, white men who have been very much radicalized in the past several years. And we need to figure out, you know, how we can win some people over to fight for justice and, and to join sort of solidarity movements to improve everybody's lives. And, you know, that's why I work in the labor movement, because I see a solidarity as the antidote to um, this kind of right wing extremism. Um, but we need to think about ways that we can get people off of Facebook uh, and off of Twitter. So that's uh, some more things we need to think about. Thanks, Andy. Closing thoughts from you, Ron. Sure. I think a lot of people, my sense is a lot of people feel fed up right now with social media as a toxic mess. And they might be tempted to, you know, take their device down to the ocean and throw it in the water and just go live in the mountains. Um, but ultimately, um, that won't work. I, I think, you know, we the fact of the matter is we live in a, you know, a, a shrinking globe with many shared problems. We're going to need something like the Internet or social media to solve our collective action problems. It's just that social social media as presently defined around surveillance capitalism is entirely dysfunctional. And so we, we desperately need alternative models of social media, ways of bringing people together like we are now that aren't based on this giant manipulation machine underlying it all. That requires some degree of experimentation and again here, the local level is the place to start. If people in Maine can start up their own social media platform, um, perhaps it will grow and it will become popular or be duplicated in other, uh, in other cities and communities around the world. Thank you both so much for this conversation. We are now sort of out of time. Um, our guests this afternoon were Ron Debert, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto and Director of the Citizen Lab Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He's author of the new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. And also with us today was Andy O'Brien, a freelance journalist where he's been reporting on far-right groups in Maine for the magazine Mainer. He's also a former Maine state legislator, a former managing editor of the Free press in Rockland and in his day job, he's the communications director for the AFL-CIO. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming live, well, maybe not live, recorded at WERU.org. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org or email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll be back next month with a conversation on politics and conspiracy conspiracy theories. Why do people believe this stuff? But coming up next today, Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM. <laughs>